without alignment of mission, vision, and values, that creates that chaos, like inefficiency within the organization that the workforce pays the price, right? Because they're salaried professionals typically in our industries and they know they have to get the work done in a given calendar year or whatever the project is. And they're going to make sure it gets done. So any of that inefficiency comes out of their time, not necessarily the company's budget. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Renz Hayes. Renz is co-founder and principal of h Structural Engineering, a firm specializing in mid and high-rise building design. He's also a pretty big advocate of people-first organizations uh, and, and how to develop them with systems to scale, which I'm very excited to talk about. Thanks uh, so much for joining me, Renz. Thanks for having me, George. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so uh, just for a bit of context, I came across you on, on LinkedIn and I just became enamored with the kind of uh, what you're talking about, which wasn't just about structural engineering or about just those type of companies. You're really talking about organizational challenges that people face. And I really resonated with that, which is why I had to reach out. Um, and so I guess for, for everyone else, I'd, I'd love to kind of start at the beginning. What, what has been your career trajectory so far? Uh, how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, sure. That's great. And I'm glad that you picked up on that type of tone and topic that we talk about, because even when we're trying to sell engineering, generally the last thing we start talking about is structural engineering. That's not what we're actually selling. We're, we're selling like problem solving to overcome people's challenges so that they can be successful. Structural engineering is the vehicle that we're able to do so, but it's always in context of solving problems to help other people be successful. A little bit about my background. I grew up in a structural steel and miscellaneous iron company. So I actually fabricated and installed steel buildings, steel staircases, railings, guardrails, that sort of thing. And uh, that's what got me interested in in designing buildings as I was working in the, the steel shop or in the field going through high school. I wanted to learn to design the buildings that we were that we were building. That's how I got interested. After college, I got to work for a notable firm in the Boston area and got exposed to uh, high-rise building design and, and some of the biggest and best firms, architecture, construction firms uh, in the country. So I really got to see how it was done at a high level and experienced that from an employee and somebody that was ambitious trying to grow their career. I got to see the positives of working in that type of environment. I also got to see the limitations and ceilings that I was perceiving as a entry level or, or young, ambitious person in their career. From there, after I got my license, I kind of felt like there was a career ceiling for me in my current role. And I had the opportunity to go back to my family steel business. I actually ran that with my father for a number of years. Mm-hmm. The reason I would bring that up is that was a real pivotal change for me because I got exposed to organizational strategy and business financials. I had all the information on the business at my fingertips because it was my family business. And it completely changed the way I saw business and it changed how I interacted with colleagues, how I managed team members, how I talked to clients, and it made me much better at the day-to-day work. The other thing I learned from being in the steel business, we went for AISC certification, which is very much like an ISO certification. You have to have a written documented process on how you get work. And once work comes in the door, how you manage it, how you create drawings how you check that it's fabricated correctly and how you know everything went on the truck to go out the door. That's really what AISC. And from my experience as an engineer, I realized 99% of engineers just know it's something that's written in the spec book 
and we perceive it as that means a steel company is better than another company that doesn't have it. We don't really understand what it mm. means to be an ANSI certified company. Um, and I thought it was kind of hypocritical that we require people building the buildings to have written documented processes on how things are done and how quality assurance and quality control is created. But we as design professionals have no such process or requirements in our field, right? We, we're highly educated. We have a degree. We work for a few years, take the test. Now we're deemed competent and we don't need right. anyone. I guess. So that was kind of the aha moment that I saw that as being one of the things in the industry that became a career barrier and it became a barrier for growth and created a lot of confusion and frustration within the workforce because it can lead to overwhelm. You can do things out of sequence, which drives rework scope creep because you don't even know how you're providing value or what you're really expected to do in designing. Mm. If a client asks you to change a room or move a wall, or is that part of the original contract or is that late in the design process? Is that creating more work that's unnecessary? Should you work the weekend to complete it? That kind of clarity creates a ton of frustration and chaos within an organization. Yeah. Those are the things that we kind of recognize when we founded and launched H&O Structural Engineering. That's amazing. So from the very beginning, you had already a vision for what the firm culturally was going to be about. Um, through the previous experience that you had, it just became very clear that like you were trying to avoid it. The, I mean, to use your word, right, the hypocrisy in some ways of like how things are currently run in some other practices. Yeah. So my business partner, Jeremiah O'Neill, I worked with him at the larger firm. And around that time, we had the idea of launching the firm. He actually came and worked with us at the Structural Steel Company, and we started building the business on the side. We started doing work that passively came our way, but we weren't like marketing and trying to drive work. We were actually building a business first. So we started building out the design process before we started hiring and marketing and had a website. And that was a real important decision for us and milestone, I would say, in our growth as leaders. It allowed us to integrate employees and put on a staff and really get productive and be on the same page so that we could accelerate. With your business partner, how... How did you distinguish your role separately from, from his? How do we distinguish? I would say, one, we're both very aware and open people. And I would say we have complementary skill sets. My partner, he, he's really an incredible engineer. When I talk about him, I would say he's like the 0.1% talent out there in engineering. And you would never know. He's somebody you want to hang out with, go skiing with, play golf with. And you would never know how talented of an engineer he is. Hmm. I, I'm glad that I didn't find this out till later in life, that I am not as much a technical person. I'm very much like if you go on the disc profile, I'm like a DI all the way. I'm big picture thinking, visionary. I'm always trying to focus on strategy and understanding challenges, risks, like where is opportunity? How can we create value? What's the best way to communicate with someone? How do they want to communicate? And so we kind of naturally found our roles together, but we collaborate in a lot of ways. So it seems that your role then is to be, I mean, to be simplistic about it. Would you say that you're more focused on the, like, you know, you could say front of house, back of house, like he might be more focused on the actual day-to-day operations of what it means to actually execute the work versus you're more focused on the external versus uh, plus, let's say operations heavy side of like actually just HR, all the other stuff that, that needs to get done? Yeah, the, good question. And I probably was talking more from like when we were getting going. So uh, today and how we split our roles, he is obviously a lead technical expert. He, he really has an expertise in, in kicking projects off in the right way and taking on some of the more complicating engineering tests we get. 
He's also really good at, he's amazing at just getting anything done. So like when it comes to creating a design process, improving quality control, he really takes on like a, a really high end COO role. And for me, I really kind of take on the upfront client work in onboarding, pricing jobs, doing proposals, uh, and really building brand awareness. All the stuff that we're doing on LinkedIn is intentional. I, I know a, a thing companies like to say is good people are hard to find, but then if you take that and uh, flip the script in it, so to speak, it's like, what are we doing to attract good people to our company? And if good, pe- if good people don't know about you, is that really, is that really good people are hard to find or are you hard to find? So we really kind of made a pivot and marketing is one of those eight core functions that creates a balance or balanced organization that's important for growth. So I take on that kind of building the brand awareness keeper of like the mission, vision, values, the direction of the company in that way. Fantastic. It's really great to hear. I think sometimes when people are starting off in the business, it's very hard for them to define what their role should be. And it seems like the openness and transparency that you have with your partners allowed you to also be in reflective, it seems, right? Because it seems like by bringing up DISC, you're also kind of bringing up this self-awareness as to like what your strengths are, which has allowed you to really focus in on your core strengths and find that person, or at least recognize, oh, my partner really compliments me on the stuff that I'm weakest in. And I think that it points to both a vul- like a vulnerability too that I that I appreciate because it's it's actually, you need that vulnerability to to move ahead. I think, I think it's incredibly, incredibly important. Yeah, that's well said. I totally agree. Um, and you're right. It, it does take like, you have to be able to be self-aware and actually like look at yourself objectively. And I think once you get over that hurdle, it's, it's a real key attribute of any relationship, right? It's understanding mm-hmm. each other's strengths and weaknesses. And it's almost like you have to forgive them for their weakness and right. for their strengths and try to put everyone in a position to succeed. How is put to me one time is like, if you have a line and the things above the line make you happy and you're good at and the things below the line, like we can still do those, but they make you unhappy. You want to limit how much you're below the line. Yeah. And yeah, you never yeah. want to make that the majority of what you're doing. So it's not to say that I don't go do technical stuff or design when we need to. It's really important to, again, I guess, kind of forgive people for their flaws or their mm. weaknesses and appreciate them for their strengths and put them in a position to succeed. Yeah. Another way I've heard about that in a sort of a different lens is to like try to fire yourself out of certain jobs, especially the ones that you feel you're not. And so you try to find the best people to fit those roles, which kind of segues into my next kind of question it has to do with about team structure, yeah. you know, for with, with this, with this very intentional mindset that you've taken to construct both your early roles, right. But between both of you, how has that manifested itself strategically within the business? Would you say that, you know, sometimes it can be a matter of applying where you typically, where you worked at before or seeing comparables. Did you find it to be anything where going back to that designing that process from the very beginning, was there anything about trying to apply first principles or anything like that to how you design your org? Do you think there's anything to be learned there or anything that you apply? Yeah, absolutely. And, I'll probably start at a higher organizational level because that's generally where I'm thinking. And if you've ever heard any of my content on LinkedIn or me speak before, I, I talk a lot about mission, vision, and values. And something you and I were talking about is there's a lot of autonomy in architecture and engineering. And that creates a lot of great things and um, gives people opportunity. It's kind of an entrepreneurial environment. It's very easy to get a job and hand that off to somebody to design the job. It's very clear that they're expected to design the job, right? Get it done, right. deliverables. That's autonomy. So there's a lot of just internal reward and being given that autonomy. But what can also happen is chaos if there isn't alignment in the company, right? So 
it can be fulfilling, but that can often lead to a burnout culture or a very a culture that has a lot of rework and scope creep, and that kind of creates that overwhelm. It doesn't necessarily hurt the company though, because everyone's a salaried employee. So a lot of that rework, scope creep, that burnout due to the lack of alignment really falls on the individuals and they're generally accountable. They're well-educated, capable professionals. So they still get the job done, but it's at their own sacrifice. Yeah. And, and also, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. They're also well-intentioned too is the other thing that came to yeah. mind, right? It's like you, you want, I mean. Right, what we do. Exactly. You take pride, but also there's a part of it too, where you're, you want to please the client, right? You want to, you want to deliver the best work that you can provide. And because it, it still carries with it, uh, the creative aspect of it, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of personal investment within that. And absolutely. And I guess, I think you were probably going to go to the direction of like how, how you structure that ultimately, right? Yeah. What is alignment, right? How do you, yeah. is that culture? Is that a mission? So I would say the first thing that you have to do is, Find your mission, vision, and values. A mission is a, should be a very short statement. It defines your why, your purpose. Like why does this company exist? It is inspirational. As far as a vision, you're painting the picture of the company in five years. You're telling everybody where you're going. It's an aspirational goal, right? You're trying to be, you aspire to the company. A very key thing in developing a vision is you write it in the present tense, right? So you're writing in the present tense because what you're doing collectively as a group is agreeing to start behaving and becoming that company today. Mm, the only way they can get to the company that you want to be is to start acting like that company, right? The same thing, if you want to accelerate your career and get a higher paying, like higher, uh, mm. more accountability, more responsible job, you don't become more responsible when you get the job. You have to become more responsible in order to earn the job, right? So the core values, missions, your purpose, visions, where you're going, your core values, these are the things that really drive behavior in culture, right? They got decision making. Three to five or six, I like to use the rule of three and I, you know, short, brief statements. And what you're trying to do is find out the three core values that drive that behaviors that are necessary to create the value proposition you're selling to your client. So the fourth part to the mission, vision, and values is really be clear on how you deliver value. So if I use H&O Structural Engineering for an example, our mission, a better experience for our team, for our clients. We're doing a couple of things there, right? We're poking at the industry norm of burnout and mm. like people that are leaving because they see a career ceiling at 10 or 15 years or working too much or not feeling appreciated, unclear on like how to grow their, grow their career. That's, we want to create a better experience for them with a positive work environment. In engineering, I won't speak to architecture, but often the, the complaints about engineers is they're rigid in how they communicate. They don't respond fast enough. They're generally overwhelmed, so they get back to play it, right? Or they might overdo this. And I would say those are also symptoms of an imbalanced organization, that overwhelm, right? Like hmm. if doing things out of sequence and then doing things again, you don't have enough time in the day to think about something new or do something different. You, you need to delay Absolutely. Yeah. how to get home at night. So our mission, a better experience, our vision, we're going to be a nationally recognized company. Our vision is actually like two pages in details, like what's our revenue? What are the type of people that we're going to be working for? Where's our revenue coming from? Like in what areas, what sector, right? And then our values are embrace growth, be a partner and be responsive. And those are creating the behaviors that solve those typical complaints in the structural engineering. Wow, that's really clear. That's great. I mean, that's a pretty, uh, you can tell how thoughtful it is to kind of build up on top of each other in a way that it provides the right guardrail. So if I were to be joining this company, I would know exactly like what you value, right? As like the owner and what I'll be, ultimately held accountable for, 
Exactly. Yeah. And you can lead with outcomes, right? That's the whole thing. It's like, now we've set that framework. Here's what's important. We're creating a better experience. We want to embrace growth. We want to be a partner. We want to be responsive. The other way we phrase like our value proposition, we look at architects, their investment is in the relationship they have with private developers. We generally work in the private market. So private real estate developers, that's their lifeblood, right? That's what creates their business. They need to make sure that that's successful. Developers, they're investing money. Sometimes there's sometimes other people's money. They're putting debt on the line and taking risks. Their biggest fear is losing money. They, they need to protect their investment. And so our three keys that we look at to do that is we want to meet deadlines. We want to support informed decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And like, that's what leads to development success. Meet deadlines, uh, cost-effective design, and then we want to support informed decisions. The worst thing I see in the design world is when developers are making blind decisions, thinking it's the best thing for them, simply because they don't have all of the decision-making criteria at their fingertips. Mm -hmm. So if we can be responsive, we're buying in as partners, we're going to be proactive in giving them that information so that they can make the best decisions for them. I'm fascinated by how the, ultimately this goes down to not just the people that you end up looking to hire, right? Because I'm sure all you're using these values when you're interviewing. You're trying to tease out through the questions, how do I discover in a very short amount of time that you probably have when you're interviewing somebody that this person can fit those values? But I'm, I'm also just wondering then there's also frameworks that you have to develop just on the process side to be able to enable that as well. Because it's not, in, so, in some ways, it's not just that the, it's like two parts, right? It's if, let's say you could have all the mission and values and everything else, but if there's an inauthenticity to how it's actually structured from a process perspective, yeah. you could hire great people, but you can still miss the mark because you're not enabling them, right? So they could still lead to burnout and everything else, even though all these other things are happening because it's, it's like another you can think of it as a three stool thing or whatnot, but you know, there's another piece to this. That's also super critical. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the team side a little bit of like, well, how does that help define who you look for? And then the tooling. Make one comment to that, that I think is very, very important. So leadership, the reason mission, vision, and values typically fall and have a bad rap is like their lip service, right? They're just things that are on the mm. wall or on the website is that they're not actually utilized in how the business operates or makes decisions. The most important part of any of that, all of that is a waste of time if the leadership is not going to make decisions that align with their mission, vision, and values. The second they start to waver from those core values and that mission and that vision, they've lost their whole team. No one's going to use them. So mm -hmm. it's up to the leadership to first start making decisions. Like we talk about mission, vision, and values all the time. Every week we talk about it. Every time somebody comes to us with a decision, we're referencing one of those terms in making that decision because we're trying to reinforce it. The reason they're so short and brief is so that they're memorable. We almost want them to become a part of the fabric of the subconscious of our team. And same thing, like if we're doing brand messaging well, our clients know those terms now. Like there's no better reward to me when client explains our their work experience with our team with our own language. Like that That's is the amazing. <laughs> Love that. That's um, great. I wish I could get more of that. And that's the goal. Right? That's ultimately yeah. the part. When it comes to hiring people, and I think we should talk about the eight core functions of a business that creates a balanced organization. One of those is marketing and brand awareness. The reason we're trying to be so vocal and get out there on LinkedIn is we want to attract people that share that those mm -hmm. pain points and share this purpose and share these values. And like are excited to be a part of that culture. That's a big part of what we're doing on LinkedIn. 
we're trying to get the voice out there of what we're building because we're excited about the future. And if people want to be a part of that, we want them to, they want, we want them to know about us, right. We attract them and that in, in itself makes the interview process so much better. Um, cause they've, they've already vetted the company. They already know yeah. why they're talking to us. It's very clear and they're ready to talk to those terms. We found it very hard to use like recruiters in architecture and engineering. It just seems really hard to find people that are aligned or ready to pick their head up. They're generally in that overwhelmed country culture. Totally. So just worried about how to get their jobs done. They're not worried about their career, what's best for them. Yeah. No, I, and I can see, I mean, I've helped to hire teams in the past and you always are looking out for that person that can come in and they want to work there, right? They want to work with you. They want to work with the company because they've already have self-selected themselves very passionately about what you're doing through whatever, what is that we've done in the past to attract that, whether from a branding perspective, to your point, and the tone of the interview also is very materially different. You're going away from just talking a little bit about them in some way. You end up then being very curious about you and the business, and they start to like really dig in. And the almost the best outcome is people that come in where you almost feel like they've already been working there. Yeah. In the very little t- amount of time you've been talking to me, like you can already see them. Oh, I know what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. to work with you, to do stand-ups with you or whatever it is, because they've just have been, I don't know, it goes back to that kind of branding aspect that we we're talking about. Yeah, no, that, that's great. And I would say like, honestly, the hiring process and like interviewing and understanding alignment and competencies, that's the biggest challenge. And I think it's the biggest key to success, which is why we've invested so much time in that brand messaging and, and getting clear on who we are. Uh, we've spent equal amount of time in trying to refine our hiring process. So we have like very structured interviews. We actually do a three-part interview and then a reference interview. And we try to use the same questions in the same language so that we already are anticipating what type of answers we're looking for. It gives us an edge and much more awareness to the context of the conversation. I'm not a psychologist by any means, but in content that I've absorbed it's like a lot of communications lost in translation right like we can't recall it all so the more that we can create a product gives us that much better uh feedback from an interview we're able to be much more intentional about it and how does this translate over to the actual processes that you put in place for the actual execution of the work yeah thank you for asking so when i think of a really great setup at a company i think of kind of uh, three things and a bit of a triangle, right? There's the the alignment part. That's the mission, the vision, the values, and the value proposition to the client. Now you got to create a framework for your team to be successful. Like how do you deliver that value efficiently? Like what's step A all the way to step Z? Like how do you create a framework for people to be successful? In? The other part to that framework is you got to make sure that you're training people and then develop. So training from our perspective, and I actually heard these two terms, I think this week, Training is like developing short-term competencies, the ability to deliver the work today. Development is building the awareness and the character attributes and the qualities that are going to make them successful later in their career growth. You're trying to develop the future them. Training is for now. Development is for future growth. And then the third piece of this is financial literacy. Ultimately, at the end of the day, all businesses need to be profitable and they need to have cash flow. And if you don't have those, you don't have a business. So if you truly believe in what you're doing as a company, to be around, to give your clients the value you're delivering, you need to make sure that you're profitable and have cash flow. And if you think it's like commonplace in America now, or for as long as you can remember, is to hire people and try to 
create all of the behaviors and actions that create profit and cash flow without telling them how they impact cash flow. Yeah. Um, how the great game of business correlates that is they talk, it's like playing football without a scoreboard. You have no clue what's going on. Like every player on the field has a different role on the team, but they're aligned by the scoreboard. Right. So they're going to call a different play if it's first and 10 or third and 20 or third and two they're going to call the best play as a team to put them in a position to succeed. Right. So why don't we do that in business? That was a real like aha moment for us this year. And that's something we've gone through implementing the great game of business. We went totally open book management. Everyone went through financial literacy training and um, we actually have very clear company-wide bonus structure where people can earn up to 20% of their salary on a given year based on company performance. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Was there any hesitation at all when you first started to look at the open book idea internally? Was there any kind of like, it can be for something that's not very maybe commonplace within the industry, Mm -hmm. taking that leap, did you ever feel any kind of hesitation? There's certainly a risk to it, right? It's very, going back to vulnerability. There's a, we're being vulnerable because you're opening people up. You're opening, you're opening up the books to everybody that could put you under scrutiny. And we have no doubt that we're going to, have people as we grow that really appreciate it and are excited and fulfilled by it. And we're going to have people that don't quite fit the culture and they might start to get frustrated with whatever their current position or their growth path. And they might leave because of that, because they think they're worth more or they can go earn more. Or they could go do this themselves. That to us is inevitable, right. probably whether we do it or not, but I think it's likely that it will happen why we ultimately, and this is kind of a stress test, what's the cost of inaction? To us, we want to grow and build this fulfilling, positive work environment and create a national company. To do that, we think the platform that we're creating, especially with the financial transparency, puts our team in the best position to be able to do that while maintaining the culture and while maintaining the better experience that we're selling to our clients. And because without, without that connection, we're just trying to guide them blind. And then once we're bigger where like Jeremiah and I don't have our pulse on the entire company, how do we make sure that everyone's aligned and creating that same thing? How was it received when you announced it? Was everyone like, did you get the sense that everyone was ultimately pretty positive or they themselves didn't know what that meant? Yeah. So that's a really great question. I would say they're across the board, right? Like some people are really excited to learn it. Sorry about the dog. I'm work from home right now. Yeah. So in some cases, like some people are just like, I know like, what's important to us. I know how to do a good job. Like, is this information I really need, right? Like there's some people that mm-hmm. don't need, that's fine. There's also a lot to be, to learn from like financial literacy training at business. It's completely different than personal finances. Like if you manage a good budget at home, but you get a paycheck every week, right? You know, when you're coming in, you don't really have cash flow to worry about versus in business, you have profit <laughs> and loss. You have your P&L, your income statement, and then you have a balance sheet that matches cash flow. And it's possible that you can be profitable and not have any accounts. So mm-hmm. like, you have to watch both and, and be on top of accounts receivable. And then same thing with kind of the bonus structure. We have like a say 10 levels to the bonus structure based on company performance. We have a minimum threshold, right? If we're paying everybody at our company market rate for their position and their competencies, we want to incentivize and we want to bonus them for performance above market. So if we're operating at market average profit, then everybody, there's no bonus for anybody to share because we're all compensated for market performance already. But anything we can do greater than that, and we do operate greater than that pretty significantly, like we want to share that upside. And 
the hope for us is that we can maintain that level of execution at a much higher level, like as we grow. Hmm. Since announcing it, how public have you made this, by the way? Is it like something where it's not part of your recruitment material? Like, have you started to see, you know, basically I'm trying to understand after announcing, are you finding that there are more candidates that are really interested in this type of culture coming to you because of it? Well, I would say that we have softly released it, but this is, we were waiting. We actually got down to the details of the bonus plan recently. We've been operating with kind of open book and forecasting revenue with the whole team for the last six months, but we didn't have the whole bonus structure really vetted. You really got to stress test that across like all future possibilities. We didn't want to change it once we released it. So we've got consultants and really made sure that we did it right. We just recently, we just we just released that to our team and actually implemented that proactively for the 2020. So they'll, they'll receive bonuses based on that plan and then we'll kick off the plan from day one on 2021. Uh, But this is going to be a big lever that we want to pull because from our world, if you're looking for a positive work experience, like engaging work, very clear expectations and career growth opportunity and clarity on how to do that. We want to train you to grow. Like at the end of the day, we think a business's growth is directly tied to how well you can develop leaders. Hmm. Like our, we like to say we want to help develop leaders so that they are capable of leaving and doing whatever they want to do and being successful. But we want to create the work environment and the opportunity within our company that they don't want to leave. We want to have that. Of course. Conversation. Yeah. So that is 100%. Like if you see us on LinkedIn, that is a message that's going to be going out there loud and clear. Like we think that's going to be our biggest lever to share the next stage of this. An annual bonus plan, an open book, that's great. But that's all short-term value sharing. We want to make sure we're creating value long-term and increasing the growth. So we're going to actually introduce like a five-year bonus incentive tied to growth, right? Like a big, hairy, audacious goal of BHAG. We want people tied into and excited about the future. And we're going to have even more long-term incentive plans beyond that. We're kind of just getting going on that. But we think that is going to help us attract the best and brightest. We want A-level talent to come here. And that, in turn, is going to allow us to capture this national market and the high-rise market and really accelerate while like maintaining culture and that work experience and our value proposition. What kind of, on the personal growth side, what are the ways in which that's actionable within the organization? So as an example, like some organizations might have one-on-ones on a weekly basis with their direct reports to be able to track, you know, really closely that progress. So they'll meet with a manager and whatnot, and they'll, they'll keep a running tab of the things that they feel are personally uh, areas of growth for them mm-hmm. in, in, versus like, let's say the one-year cycle review cycle that's very common, more so in the architecture industry where it's, you know, all, all the stuff that could have accumulated and been fixed along the way just kind of like piles up to the very end. What other, or, you know, that's one example, but are there any other tools that you use to be able to track that growth for a person? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would bring that back to the conversation of training and development, right? So if you have a framework for actually how your business executes your work products, for us, it's structural engineering, design, we design buildings, we create design drawings, we manage construction administration throughout construction. So we need to identify what competencies are successful in that framework. And then we need to create training that develops those competencies. That's kind of in the short term. And then so we like to think of onboarding, right, at entry level and say like working up to a a really self-sustaining project manager. They don't really, we all as professionals like to collaborate and bounce decisions off each other, but they can really operate on their own, right? 
how do you get from A to B? So you, you want it to be clear about that and then help each individual. Everyone has their own strengths and personalities like we already talked about. So if you can identify those early and then build a training program or like walk them through the training program to put them into a position where they can get to like a project manager level, that to us, once you become a project manager, you really can impact how the company operates. You're at a project manager, you have the most face time, most interaction mm-hmm. with clients, and you're the one actually delivering the work product, right? So super important. You can really move the needle in a business. And that's why we think it's so important to like be open about strategy and training. When I talk about long-term career growth, though, the training piece, I think like it's obviously important to be developing those long-term career growth and breaking through that career ceiling isn't doing what you do best every day, right? If all you want to do is be a structural engineer, all you want to do is be an architect, there's a ceiling earning potential to that skill set. There's the outliers, right? The 0.1% talent, right? That might be able to break that mold. But otherwise, you want to start becoming like, what are my weaknesses? Like, what other competencies can I develop that help me leverage my architectural skill set or my engineering skill set to its maximum value? How do I create more value? What other competencies? And that's the part of long-term development. I think that's really important that breaks that career hurdle and gives people opportunity for growth. So like at H&O, how I look at that, if we're training people in strategy, right, they really understand how the business works, operates, how it creates value. We're showing them a framework. We're showing them the business financials. And we're encouraging that long-term development and sharing like everything that we have learned to date. We're giving them an environment and trying to stimulate their own thoughts and perspectives to contribute to the growth. So I would generally, a rule of thumb, I like to say, once you're at a certain part of your career, say you're self-sustaining, you can really run your own projects. If you have to ask somebody how you can provide more value, you probably need to go back and start building and working on yourself. And like, Hmm. I like to say, become a lifelong learner. Because at a certain stage in career growth, you have to start bringing ideas and opportunities to the table and showing people how that's going to provide value. That's the difference. Yeah. If you're still waiting for somebody to tell you, take your next step, you're going to be waiting for a long time. So we want to create an environment where people are always looking for opportunities, give them the confidence that they can present that and then reward them for it. Yeah. And any business, right? The things to be taught, there's no shortage of things that could be improved. Uh, and to be able to instill that, again, that autonomy, right, to your team where they feel they have the, all the context necessary to be able to, to confidently propose new ideas and be able to identify what those gaps are, especially when they have that full context of the financial literacy. That's really powerful. I mean, that creates an environment that everyone is, it's not even there's everyone's rowing in the same direction or anything like that, but it's also people through that experience might find the things that they might be actually way more passionate about too that still add value to the business. Like I could see in that environment where someone realizes they might not ever been exposed to the business side of things, but once they are, it becomes a switch where they start to look at that. I was like, oh, they start to see their work differently. And then maybe start to think creatively about how can I address some of these other things? Like maybe at Monograph, we have a a four-day work week with the explicit intention that that extra day is more for free association, whether that's you know, spending time with family all the way to people working on side projects. Mm-hmm. And the net benefit of that is ultimately that because of the all the support that we provide organizationally, the hope is something sparks an idea that on that extra day that they might bring back to the business. And yeah. But again, we need to have that underlying infrastructure of uh, the context and be able to give them everything else to, to create that supporting environment for them to take action. That's great. Yeah. Some organizations could be 
without all that pre-work on like creating that environment, you know, you could see where people might not want to contribute because they might be afraid to. And there are definitely places that operate out of a culture of fear, totally. which is like, if there's any takeaway from this conversation, I was like, the worst thing you can do is operate out of a culture of fear. Stifling. Yeah, you never want that. I mean, in your context, like, what would you say is the ramp up time when you hire somebody? You probably have already kind of some idea of it, but like from when they first come into the door, when you feel like they're kind of humming along on a project, what's that average time for you? Yeah. So like if we're talking about like an experienced professional with how we operate and all those things, you're looking at a few months, right? So yeah. probably say you're coming in as an experienced, competent person, probably two months getting up to speed on how we operate our systems and everything we do. So. You're obviously providing value in there, but we're doing a lot of training and onboarding in that first time. How long did it take you to find that person? It's a great question. Um, it has been, I guess that could go back to a few conversations. So when we first started, we're a small engineering firm, two people. Then we get our first employee, we get our second employee. It's really hard to find available talent in the Boston market, mm. right? An hour drive of Boston, there might be 75 people total that maybe align with us and maybe only like 30, 40 people that we're actually looking to hire currently, right? And it's going to, they're all working. It's going to take forever to get in touch with them and, and lure them towards the HMO brand. So we actually implemented a remote working environment back in 2017, and we started hiring people from all over the country. Oh, wow. So we focused on value alignment and like we couldn't find anyone within driving distance. We opened it up to the country, posted in 50 major cities and had like six qualified applicants in the next day. So we anticipated that a remote work environment was going to happen over the next decade. We didn't think COVID was going to happen. It was going to happen overnight, but we used it as a necessity to grow. Without it, we weren't going to be able to innovate. We weren't going to be able to capture our vision. So it made that decision that much easier to go for it because it was a necessity. Now, like if I were to be in the past, like we really are just starting, we're getting momentum with our brand, right? We have a, a really good book of work in our local community. I would say most people in Boston know who we are. We're starting to do work elsewhere in the country. We have 18-story tower in Philadelphia, 450,000-square-foot building in Syracuse. We're getting, we have buildings in North Carolina, Missouri, plenty of other cities. And we're, we actually have a new opportunity in San Diego. So we're really trying to get that national brand recognition and get our mission, vision, values out there, all those things. So we're looking to improve that cycle of finding the right people, right? Because that's the hard it is hard. Yeah. Tried to look internally rather than just say it's hard and like go out with the traditional recruiter and talk to, try to send a message to every engineer in the world. We want to get our brand, our message out there and hopefully attract the right people. So hopefully that, that happens fast. <laughs> so, I mean, you kind of highlighted the point of like, it just, it takes time, right? To find the right person and to get them to the point where they're actually running in the business, they're actually like humming along. That time is in a culture of fear, there's one way to look at it. One way is to say, or maybe the explicit way to say is, it's an investment that you're making and trying to find this person, right? This time that you can't get back. Yeah. In, in a place of, of fear, you get higher churn rates, people turn over. So all the, it, it's just, it, it's like a, you're just a leaky bucket, right? Ultimately, ah. investing all this time and resources, you're never ah. going to hit momentum because, or, mm -hmm. or it's just throwing bodies at the problem, right? Where you're just, you have the, uh, in some instances, a brand and a notoriety as a, you know, at least in, in architecture, it can be, you have like a design brand that's so powerful that it can attract work yes. and, and talented people. But mm -hmm. then you just operate in a such a way where you sacrifice your employees 
for the sake of just because you're not willing to or don't put any of these processes in place? Yeah, that's that's the part we refer to as organizational imbalance. So a lot of the things that we're talking about, like burnout, rework, scope creep, all of those frustrations, like low career ceilings, they're not intentional, but architectural and engineering companies can grow pretty large because it's a well-educated workforce and there's a lot of autonomy and pride, right? Yeah. And you can hand somebody a design responsibility and they, they get it and they're responsible. They're capable people and they deliver. You can grow to 100, 200 people with a very horizontal organizational structure with a few people that understand how the business makes money, but haven't created clarity for the rest of the team. And everybody is just operating and executing work, keeping people happy. But without alignment of mission, vision, and values, that creates that chaos, like inefficiency within the organization that the workforce pays the price, right? Because they're salaried professionals typically in our industries, and they know they have to get the work done in a given calendar year or whatever the project is. And they're going to make sure it gets done. So any of that inefficiency comes out of their time, not necessarily the company's budget. And so when we talk about building balanced organization, we talk about eight core areas. There's planning, leadership, sales, marketing, people, operations, finance, and legal. And most companies have two are strong in two or three of those areas, but they're Mm -hmm. blind to the opportunity costs of the deficiencies in the other areas. And when things go wrong, they tend to see the imperfections in the two or three areas they're already good at, right? Mm. So when they try to improve, they try to improve at the things they're already better at than the other five or six core areas, which just creates more imbalance. Yeah. The key to creating a a sustainable long-term company, we call that intrinsic value, which is predictable, sustainable, and transferable value, predictable, sustainable, and transferable profit and revenue. Mm is really creating balance across all eight of those things and trying to advance them equally. And so that's where like in good leadership and good and good organizational structures, you start to build, you want to bring people around you that help you shore up your weak spots. It doesn't mean you personally or any one, two, three leaders have to be great at all eight areas, but you have to be aware of the importance of those and put people in the right spot or get consulting and coaching. And ultimately that creates the work environment I'm probably going too far here, but with the great game of business, something I love from them, the company is the product, Mm. right? The the whole point of H&O structure, we want to create a better experience. We want to create an entity that's there to support the people that put their blood, sweat, and tears into it and to support their families. So we want it to always be there so that they can enjoy a fulfilling career, growth opportunities, and it can support their life outside of H&O. So if... We, it's also creating a better experience for clients, but never at the sacrifice of the team. So we want to make sure that we're protecting the value of the organization so it's always there. And if the organ, and that's really the push to become balanced so that it can grow and become. I think that's a great spot to segue into some of the questions I'm seeing here in the Q&A. So someone asked, I'm a company of just three, and this all sounds great, but it feels like too much for me to take on at once. What's your advice if I only have a handful of hours every week to build this type of work environment? If you can get anything right in a company, it's to start with mission, vision, and values. Something I didn't touch on in my career growth is while I was working at the steel company and started the engineering company, I became exposed to mergers and acquisitions. And that is a ruthless, unbiased judgment of the value of your company. And I started to become interested in how they perceived organizational value. And it was different than how I had thought of it before. And that's where I ended up coming across Ken Sanginario, 
of corporate value metrics, he created an M&A certification program called the Certified Value Growth Advisor. And I took that course. It was a week course. And that's when I was reading all the books and trying to improve the steel company and start the H&O Structural Engineering Jeremiah. It's like, where do you start? Like, I know all this great stuff, but I feel like I'm always in the middle and get like mediocre results. And after taking that course, it brought total clarity that you have to create very clear mission, vision, values first, because that aligns your team. That becomes the foundation and how you make decisions, you create behaviors, you deliver value, you attract people to your company. You can, if you don't have any process, you don't have any financial clarity, say like the books are still even a mess. If you have mission, vision, and values, right, you're going to create a good work environment and that's going to be the foundation for the growth. Yeah, something to add there is uh, the word decision comes up a lot. And if you think about it in somewhat of an abstract sense, but it's a real sense, I mean, all you're doing every day is just making decisions. And you have to think about, well, what are the most important decisions you can spend your time making? I think Jeff Bezos talks about this a lot that like for, and he sees his role as making like three important decisions a year. And that's going to completely change the nature of the course of the business. And typically, they're, they're irreversible decisions. Once that you can't change, it would be very difficult to change. But what the mission, vision, and values does as a framework is that it provides you the ability to make decisions a little bit faster. And it gives you back some of that time because then you can always go back to that as your guidepost, right? And like help you make decisions with more confidence because you have something that you fundamentally believe it to be true. So there's no need to kind of like, um, especially when you think about like your vision, right? As like a, a guidepost for decision-making. Let's say you want to go from, I don't know, like the three-person firm here, right? And you want to grow to be a business that can support 20 people in three years time or two years time or whatever. When you start to think about the decisions you're going to make, you might look at it from that lens. Well, what does it take if I work backwards from that? What are the things, the important decisions I need to make? Maybe it's like right now I need to outsource certain parts of that, that kind of the eight, uh, what'd you call them? The eight, uh, eight core competencies? Core functions yeah, the, the eight core functions. You might make quicker decisions on outsourcing the things you're not very good at and finding people outside consultancies to manage that, or just it just changes the way you're looking at the problem with much more clarity. Yeah, that's well said, George. And going on that vision, when you know where you're headed as a company, it makes those short-term decisions that much easier. Like a lot of people, as we started in, as we've grown the business, it's like, how hard was it to make the decision to hire an employee? And it was like, easy. Like it was necessary to hit our goal. Like it wasn't like, hey, if I, maybe we, we might not have enough work. It's like, if we don't start hiring people, we're never going to become the entity that we want to be. So it becomes a necessity. It helps streamline mm-hmm. it. Another question here. Who did you include when writing your mission? Was it just you or your partner or was it open to the whole team? At the time that we did it, my partner and I did it together. I would say if you're an established organization, have a leadership team. I think it's something you want to do with your leadership team. It's kind of right. like you do annual strategic planning, and this is something that you want to implement for, for next year or the year after. Like You want to start bringing it up with that team that you would have a part of your strategic planning. It just made me think of this, but do you ever iterate on that? Have you ever, you know, since implemented, iterated on, on it anyway, tweaked it because of something that changed in the business or anything else? We have it today. I'm not saying that it's ever moving. I do think the the purpose and and what like some of the early criticism, even from people that I was trying to bounce, like hear what we were doing, like get feedback from, the, stimulating like our thoughts and perspectives. They were like, "It's too bland. Like a better experience. What does that mean?" And I think the beauty of a good mission statement is what gives it meaning is 
how you act, how you use it, and yeah. how you build the company and make decisions. That's what creates a better experience. The fact that we visit that every single week and an example of what creates a better experience is what makes that great. So we, like in that exercise, we went through all kinds of, we have like a notebook of stuff that we wrote down all the different terms for experience, value, right? Like customer service, whatever those things are. And we kind of always came back to Zappos had a lot of influence on me too. It was like, ultimately like, well, we want to make more money. Well, what does money do? Money allows us to go to the beach, to do the things that make us happy, right? So like happiness becomes the core thing. We want to create an environment of that's fulfilling. And that's how we ended up on experience was our core word there. And that's a pretty broad and can have different meaning depending on how we're behaving. But I like to think of our vision could ultimately change, but I think our mission is pretty well anchored. I like to think of that as the one foot. You can pivot off that one foot, but that's kind of our anchor. That's our mm, That's fantastic. Another question here. Your story has been great and I appreciate it. Have you had any regrets in the many decisions you've made? Regrets? I would say no. I generally try not to have regrets. I'm generally an optimistic person. I try to learn from my experience and mistakes there. We've definitely had challenges and mistakes. Like we, we've had some bad hires that were really costly. There's always things that you think you could have done better, or maybe I could have been better prepared. But I would say no regrets. Yeah. Have you read that book, the Growth Mindset book, by any chance? I haven't. It is in my wish list on uh, Audible. Though it sounds. It's an important point. Yeah, I mean, you're. It's very clear, kind of aligned to that. But it's an important point. This kind of idea of being uh, optimistic, even in in scenarios where you know, it can be very difficult where it's, but the mind shift is important because if you have a growth mindset, then even your own personal challenges, you see them as opportunities to grow and learn from. Mm-hmm. And it can kind of seem kind of like pie in the sky-ish, you know, or you can be, it's very easy to be sort of cynical about the idea, but I think it does have a transformative effect. It removes, it's a way to manage ego in some ways too, right? Because you kind of are divorcing yourself from that, the, you're not punishing yourself necessarily for the mistakes you might make or for the things you kind of see it as like, actually, this is just another opportunity for me to learn something that's going to make me better tomorrow. Yeah, that's well said. I wish I had this perspective too, like going back to like when I played sports or something is Hmm. you as a person are not defined by like the mistakes that you make, right? You're not judged on your performance at work. That doesn't make you the person you are. Like what makes you your, who you are is your character, right? Like what kind of character do you have? Do you have the right intent? And if you know, and you're keeping yourself accountable that you're true to the, your intent, the other stuff can sometimes be out of your control and you need to forgive yourself for that. Know that you have the extent, that you have the right intent and you're not judged as a person for it. Thanks. Well said. All right. So I'd like to end it off with a couple of uh, two questions for a, a little lightning round. So I'll try to answer these somewhat quickly. I'll start off with an easy one, which is what uh, books would you recommend right now or podcasts that you're listening to? What books would I recommend? Two books. I, I have a million books that... I'd suggest for anyone that is really just starting their journey of becoming a lifelong learner, I really recommend, what's it called? I'm drawing The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. Hmm. That was the book. I read that six years ago and I pretty much committed to doing some level of reading or audio for an hour to two hours a day for the last seven years. And it has had a compounding effect on me as a person and my ability to think differently and improve leadership, my ability to be a father, my ability to be a husband, all those things, it's made me a much better person. And I learned a lot of the perspective of investing in your own personal development through the compound effect. From a business book, 
I think if you're going to, if you're just looking to read a new business book, the entrepreneurial myth, the e-myth is a really good way to start. It highlights a lot of the flaws and the frustrations that we all run into in small business. And it gives a good guidance on how to fix them. Awesome. Great recommendations. The last one I'd like to ask is, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? Wow. That's a tough one. The nicest thing anybody's ever done for me. It was a good reset question. It kind of brings it back down to like, of all these things in, in business and uh, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me? People answer personal questions. Yeah, it's, it's, it runs the gamut. We've had some very personal answers to this. Yeah. I no pressure. I'd love to go personal. I'm trying to think the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me. I have uh, a lot of mentors. None of us grow as individuals or into success alone, right? So I give a lot of credit actually to my father-in-law, Gil Campos. He was the one that introduced me to the compound effect. And uh, the other journal was living your best year ever. That's kind of an annual like reflection and goal setting process. And that's when I started doing goal setting every year. And that kind of set me off on this journey. So I think if I had to have like one moment that had the biggest impact, it was for my father-in-law and that, that kick in the pants to start investing in myself. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Renz. This has been an awesome conversation. I think we dived into a lot of topics pretty deeply, actually, which uh, which is great within the context of an hour. But really appreciate you for taking the time to share, you know, your journey and all the kind of systems that you put in place within your business. It's really exciting. Thanks, George. I really appreciate you having me on. I've enjoyed the conversation a lot and love what you guys are doing at Monograph. So, uh, yeah, speaking of Monograph, for those uh, as a kind of sign off here, you know, we are a firm management software platform that ties together your time to your projects and budgets for real-time decision-making. And so if you'd like to try it out, it's available for free to try uh, on monograph.io. Thank you so much, Renz. Take Thanks, care. Take Cheers. care. Bye, everyone. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.